Book two, part two of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, volume two, part two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Memoirs of Chateaubriand, volume two, part two, by François René de Chateaubriand, translated by Alexander Texera de Matos. Book two, part two. At the time of my departure from France, we had greatly blinded ourselves regarding Madame de Beaumont's condition she cried much and her will has proved that she believed herself to be condemned nevertheless her friends refraining from communicating their fears to one another sought to console each other they believed in the miraculous powers of the waters to be perfected later by the italian sun they separated and took different roads appointments were made in rome fragments written by madame de beaumont in paris at mont dehors in rome and discovered among her papers display her state of mind paris for some years past my health has been perceptibly declining symptoms which i thought to be the signal for departure have supervened before i am ready to depart the illusions increase as the illness progresses i have seen many examples of that singular weakness and i perceive that they will avail me nothing already i find myself taking remedies which are as irksome as they are insignificant and i shall doubtless have no greater strength to protect myself against the cruel remedies with which they never fail to martyrize those condemned to die of consumption like the others i shall abandon myself to hope to hope can i then wish to live my past life has been a series of misfortunes my present life is full of excitements and disturbances peace of mind has fled from me for ever my death would be a momentary sorrow to a few a boon to others and the greatest of boons to myself this twenty-first of floreal tenth may is the anniversary of the death of my mother and brother je peris la dernière et la plus miserable oh why have i not the courage to die this illness which i was almost weak enough to dread has subsided and perhaps i am condemned still to live long it seems to me nevertheless that i would gladly die mais je ne vais pas qu'il me coûte un soupir none has more cause than i to complain of nature by refusing me everything it has given me the sense of all i lack at every moment i feel the weight of the complete mediocrity to which i am condemned i know that self-content and happiness are often the price of this mediocrity of which i complain so bitterly but by not adding to it the gift of illusion nature in my case has turned it into a torture i am like a fallen creature who cannot forget what he has lost and who has not the force to recover it that absolute lack of illusion and hence of enthusiasm is the cause of my unhappiness in a thousand ways i judge myself as a stranger might do and i see my friends as they are my only value lies in an extreme kindness of heart which is not active enough to command appreciation nor to be of any real use and which loses all its charm owing to the impatience of my character my suffering from the misfortunes of others is greater than my power to relieve them nevertheless i owe to it the few real joys that have occurred in my life i owe to it especially my ignorance of envy the common attribute of conscious mediocrity Montdon. i had intended to enter into a few details concerning myself but ennui causes the pen to drop from my fingers all the bitterness and painfulness of my position would change to happiness if i were sure that i had but a few months to live even if i had the strength myself to end my sorrows in the only possible way i should not exert it it would be defeating my own intention showing the measure of my suffering and leaving too grievous a wound in the heart which i have deemed worthy to sustain me in my trials i beseech myself in tears to take a step which is as rigorous as it is inevitable charlotte corday says that every act of self-sacrifice bestows more pleasure in the execution than it has cost pain in the conception but her death was near at hand and i may still live long what will become of me where can i hide 
what tomb shall i choose how can i shut out hope what power can block up the door to go away in silence to court oblivion to bury myself for ever that is the duty laid upon me which i hope to have the courage to fulfil if the cup is too bitter once i am forgotten nothing can compel me to empty it to the dregs and who knows but my life may after all not be so long as i fear if i decided upon the place of my retirement i believe i should be more calm but the difficulty of the moment adds to the difficulties that arise from my weakness and it requires something supernatural to act against oneself with vigour to treat oneself as harshly as a violent and cruel enemy could do rome twenty eighth october during the past ten months i have never ceased to suffer during the last six all the symptoms of consumption and some in the last degree i lack only the illusions and maybe i have some m joubert alarmed at this desire for death which was torturing madame de beaumont addressed these words to her in his pensee love life and respect it if not for its own sake at least for that of your friends in whatever state your own may be i shall always prefer to know that you are occupied in spinning it out rather than in tearing it to pieces at the same time my sister was writing to madame de beaumont i have the correspondence which death placed in my hands the poetry of the ancients pictures one of the nereids as a flower floating on the deep lucile was that flower in comparing her letters with the fragments just quoted one is struck by the similarity of heart heaviness expressed in the different language of those unhappy angels when i think that i have lived in the company of such minds as those i am surprised at my own insignificance my eyes never light without bitter grief upon those pages written by two superlative women who vanish from this earth at a short distance one from the other Lascardet, thirtieth july i was so much charmed madame at last to receive a letter from you that i did not allow myself the time to have the pleasure of reading it through at once i interrupted its perusal to go and tell all the inmates of this house that i had heard from you without considering that my gladness is of but little importance here and that hardly any one even knows that i am in correspondence with you seeing that i was surrounded by indifferent faces i went back to my room and determined to be glad by myself i sat down to finish reading your letter and although i have read it over many times in truth madam i do not know the whole contents the joy which i constantly feel at the sight of this so long desired letter interferes with the attention which i ought to give to it and so you are going away madame do not once you have reached mont d'or forget your health give it all your care i entreat you with all the fervour and affection of my heart my brother has written to me that he hopes to see you in italy fate and nature alike are pleased to distinguish him from me in a very favourable manner but at least i will not yield to my brother the happiness of loving you that i will share with him all my life alas madame how oppressed and downcast is my heart you cannot know the good your letters do me the contempt with which they inspire me for my ills the idea that you think of me that you are interested in me exalts my courage extraordinarily write to me therefore madame so that i may cherish an idea so essential to me i have not yet seen m chendolet i long greatly for his arrival I shall be able to tell him of you and of m joubert that will be a great pleasure to me allow me madame once more to urge you to think of your health the bad condition of which incessantly afflicts me and occupies my thoughts how can you not love yourself you are so lovable and so dear to all have the justice then to do much for yourself lucile second september what you tell me madame of your health alarms and saddens me however i reassure myself by thinking of your youth and remembering that although you are very delicate you are full of life i am disconsolate at your being in a country which you do not like i would wish to see you surrounded with objects calculated to distract and to cheer you i hope that when your health recovers you will become reconciled to auvergne 
there is no spot incapable of presenting some beauty to such eyes as yours i am now living at rennes my loneliness suits me fairly well i change my residence frequently madame as you see it looks much as though i were out of place on the earth in reality it is long since i first began to look upon myself as one of its superfluous products i believe madame that i spoke to you of my sorrows and perturbations at present all that is over and i enjoy an inward peace of which none has it any longer in his power to rob me in spite of my age having through circumstances and taste almost constantly led a solitary life i knew nothing whatever madame of the world i have at last made that disagreeable acquaintance fortunately reflection came to my aid i asked myself in what way that world could be so formidable and where lay the worth of a world which can never in evil and good alike be aught but an object of pity is it not true madame that man's judgment is as shallow as the rest of his being as changeable and of an incredulity as great as its ignorance all these reasons good or bad have enabled me to fling behind me with ease the fantastic garment in which i had arrayed myself i found myself full of sincerity and strength i am no longer capable of being troubled i am working with all my might to recover possession of my life to obtain entire control of it you must also madame believe that i am not too much to be pitied since my brother the best part of myself is agreeably placed and since i have eyes left with which to admire the marvels of nature god for my support and for an asylum a heart full of peace and gentle memories if you have the kindness madame to continue to write to me that will be a great added happiness to me mystery of style a mystery everywhere perceptible nowhere present the revelation of a painfully privileged nature the ingenuousness of a girl whom one might imagine to be in her first youth and the humble simplicity of a genius unaware of its own power all breathe out of these letters a large number of which i have suppressed did madame de sevigne write to madame de guignon with a more grateful affection than madame de caux to madame de beaumont her tenderness might well pretend to keep pace with her own my sister loved my friend with all the passion of the tomb for she felt that she was going to die lucile had hardly ever left the neighbourhood of the rocher but she was the daughter of her century and the sevigne of solitude a letter from m ballange dated thirtieth fructidor informed me of the arrival of madame de beaumont who had come from mont d'or on her way to italy he told me that i need not fear the misfortune which i dreaded and that the health of the sufferer seemed to be improving on reaching milan madame de beaumont met m bertin who had been called there on business he had the kindness to take charge of the poor traveller and to escort her to florence where i had gone to meet her i was shocked at the sight of her she had but sufficient strength left to smile after a few days rest we left for rome travelling at a foot-pace in order to avoid the jolting madame de beaumont received assiduous attentions everywhere a charm interested you in this lovable woman so suffering and so forlorn the very maids at the inns gave way to this sweet commiseration my feelings may be easily guessed we have all accompanied friends to the grave but they were mute and no remnant of inexplicable hope came to render your sorrow more keen i no longer saw the fine landscape through which we passed i had taken the perugian road what was italy to me i still thought her climate too severe and if the wind blew ever so little its breezes seemed storms to me at terny madame de beaumont spoke of going to see the cascade she made an effort to lean on my arm and sat down again saying we must leave the waters to flow without us i had hired for her in rome a lonely house near the piazza d'espagna at the foot of the monte pincio it had a little garden with orange trees growing against the walls and a courtyard in which stood a fig-tree there i set down my dying charge i had had much difficulty in procuring this retreat for there is a prejudice in rome against diseases of the chest which are considered as infectious 
at that period of the revival of social order all that had belonged to the old monarchy was sought after the pope sent to inquire after the daughter of m de montmorin cardinal consalvi and the members of the sacred college followed his holiness example cardinal fesch himself showed madame de beaumont to the day of her death marks of deference and respect which i should not have expected of him i had written to m joubert of the anxiety with which i was torn before madame de beaumont's arrival our friend writes to me from mondeau i said letters that shatter my soul she says that she feels that there is no more oil in the lamp she speaks of the last throbs of her heart why was she left alone on this journey why did you not write to her what will become of us if we lose her who will console us for her we realize the value of our friends only at the moment when we are threatened with their loss we are even mad enough when all is well to think that we can leave them with impunity heaven punishes us it snatches them from us and we are appalled at the solitude which they leave around us forgive me my dear joubert to-day i feel as though my heart were twenty years old this italy has made me young again i love all that is dear to me with the same vehemence as in my early years sorrow is my element i am myself again only when i am unhappy my friends at present are of so rare a sort that the mere dread of seeing them taken from me freezes my blood bear with my lamentations i am sure you are as unhappy as i write to me and write also to that other breton unfortunate at first madame de beaumont felt a little relieved the sufferer herself began again to believe in her life i had the satisfaction of thinking that at least madame de beaumont would not leave me again i expected to take her to naples in the spring and from there to send in my resignation to the minister for foreign affairs m d'agincourt that true philosopher came to see the light bird of passage which had stopped at rome before proceeding to the unknown land m boquet already the oldest of our painters called these relays of hope kept up the sufferer and lulled her with an illusion which at the bottom of her soul she no longer retained letters cruel to read expressing hopes and fears reached me from every side on the fourth of october lucile wrote to me from rennes i commenced a letter for you the other day i have just made a useless search for it in it i spoke to you of madame de beaumont and complained of her silence towards me dear what a sad strange life i have led for some months and the words of the prophet are constantly recurring to my mind he will crown thee with tribulation he will toss thee like a ball but let us leave my troubles and speak of your anxieties i cannot persuade myself that they are justified i always see madame de beaumont full of life and youth and almost incorporeal my heart can feel no foreboding where she is concerned heaven which knows our feelings for her will doubtless preserve her for us dear we shall not lose her i seem to have an inward sense that that is certain i sincerely hope that when you receive this letter your anxiety will have disappeared tell her from me of all the real and tender interest i take in her tell her that to me her memory is one of the most beautiful things in this world keep your promise and do not fail to let me have news of her as often as possible alas what a long time will elapse before i receive a reply to this letter how cruel a thing is distance what makes you speak of your return to france you are trying to humour me you are deceiving me amid all my troubles there arises one sweet thought that of your friendship the thought that i exist in your memory in the shape in which it has pleased god to fashion me dear i see no other safe shelter for me upon earth but your heart i am a stranger and unknown to all the rest ah dear my poor brother shall i see you again this idea does not present itself to my mind very distinctly if you see me again i fear you will find me quite out of my senses ah dear you to whom i owe so much ah dear unmixed felicity o oh, memories of my happy days can you not now lighten a little my sad hours i am not one of those who exhaust all their sorrow at the moment of separation each day adds to the grief which i feel at your absence and if you were to stay in rome a hundred years you would not come to the end of that grief 
in order to delude myself as to absence not a day passes but i read some pages of your work i make every effort to imagine that i hear you speak my love for you is very natural ever since our childhood you have been my protector and my friend you have never cost me a tear never made a friend but he has become mine my kind brother heaven which is pleased to make sport of all my other felicities wills that i should find my happiness wholly in you that i should trust myself to your heart give me news soon of madame de beaumont address your letters to me at mademoiselle lamotte's although i do not know how long i shall be able to remain there since our last separation i have always where my house is concerned been like a quicksand that gives way beneath my feet assuredly to any one who does not know me i must appear incomprehensible nevertheless i vary only in form for inwardly i remain constantly the same the song of the swan preparing to die was conveyed by me to the dying swan i was the echo of that last ineffable music another letter very different from the above but written by a woman who has played an extraordinary part madame de crudener shows the empire which madame de beaumont with no strength of beauty fame power or wealth exercised over people's minds paris twenty fourth november eighteen o three i learned two days ago from m michaud who has returned from lyons that madame de beaumont was in rome and that she was very very ill that is what he told me i was deeply grieved by this i had a nervous shock and i thought a great deal of this charming woman whom i had not known long but whom i loved truly how often have i wished for her happiness how often have i hoped that she might cross the alps and find beneath the sky of italy the sweet and profound emotions which i myself have there experienced alas can she have reached that delightful country only to know pain and to be exposed to dangers which i dread i cannot tell you how this idea grieves me forgive me if i have been so much absorbed by this that i have not yet spoken to you of yourself my dear chateaubriand you must know my sincere attachment for you and to show you the genuine interest which i take in madame de beaumont is to touch you more than i should have done by writing of yourself i have that sad spectacle before my eyes i have the secret of sorrow and my soul is always torn at the sight of those souls to which nature gives the power of suffering more than others i had hoped that madame de beaumont would enjoy the privilege which she had received of being happier i had hoped that she would recover some little health with the son of italy and the happiness of having you by her side ah reassure me speak to me tell her that i love her sincerely that i pray for her has she had my letter written in reply to hers to clermont address your answer to michaud i ask you only for one word for i know my dear chateaubriand how sensitive you are and how you suffer i thought she was better i did not write to her i was overwhelmed with business but i thought of the happiness she would find in seeing you again and i imagined how it would be tell me something of your own health believe in my friendship in the interest which i vow to you for ever and do not forget me b crudener the improvement which the air of rome had produced in madame de beaumont did not last true the indications of an immediate dissolution disappeared but it seems that the last moment always lingers as it were to deceive us two or three times i had tried the effect of a drive with the patient i strove to divert her thoughts by pointing out the country and the sky to her she no longer cared for anything one day i took her to the Colosseum. it was one of those october days that are to be seen only in rome she contrived to alight and went and sat upon a stone facing one of the altars placed in the circle she raised her eyes and turned them slowly around those porticos which had themselves so many years been dead and which had seen so many die the ruins were adorned with briars and columbines saffroned by autumn and bathed in light the dying woman next lowered her eyes which had left the sun stage by stage till they came to the arena she fixed them upon the altar cross and said let us go i am cold i took her home again she went to bed and rose no more 
I was in correspondence with the Comte de la Luzerne. I sent him from Rome by each mail the bulletin of his sister-in-law's health. He had taken my brother with him when Louis XVI charged him with a diplomatic mission to London. André Chenier was a member of this embassy. The doctors, whom I called together again after the experiment of the drive, declared to me that nothing but a miracle could save Madame de Beaumont. She was impressed with the idea that she would not outlive All Souls' Day, the 2nd of November. Then she remembered that one of her kinsmen, I do not know which, had died on the 4th of November. I told her that her imagination was troubled, that she would come to see the falsity of her alarms. She replied to console me, Ah, yes, I shall go further. She noticed a few tears which I was trying to conceal from her. She held out her hand to me and said, You are a child. Were you not prepared for it? On the eve of her death, Thursday, the 3rd of November, she seemed more composed. She spoke to me of the disposal of her property, and said, speaking of her will, that all was settled, but that all had to be done, and that she would have liked to have had only two hours in which to see to it. In the evening the doctor told me that he felt obliged to warn the sufferer that the time had come for her to think of setting her conscience in order. I broke down for a minute. I was staggered by the fear of hastening the few moments which Madame de Beaumont had still to live by the formal preparations for death. I railed at the doctor, and then entreated him to wait at least till the next day. I passed a cruel night with this secret locked in my bosom. The patient did not permit me to spend it in her room. I remained outside, trembling at every sound I heard. When the door was half opened, I perceived the feeble gleam of an expiring nightlight. On Friday the 4th of November I entered, followed by the doctor. Madame de Beaumont observed my agitation, and said, Why do you look like that? I have had a good night. The doctor thereupon intentionally told me aloud that he wished to speak to me in the next room. I went out. When I returned, I no longer knew if I lived. Madame de Beaumont asked me what the doctor wanted. I flung myself at her bedside and burst into tears. She lay for a moment without speaking, looked at me, and said in a firm voice, as though she wished to give me strength, I did not think that it was quite so near. Well, the time has come to say good-bye. Send for the Abbé de Bonville. The Abbé de Bonville, having obtained powers, went to Madame de Beaumont. She told him that she had always had a deep religious feeling at heart, but that the extraordinary misfortunes which had befallen her during the revolution had led her for some time to doubt the justice of Providence, that she was ready to admit her errors, and to recommend herself to the eternal mercy, that she hoped, however, that the ills which she had suffered in this world would shorten her time of expiation in the next. She made a sign to me to withdraw, and remained alone with her confessor. I saw him come back an hour later wiping his eyes, and saying that he had never heard more beautiful language, nor seen such heroism. The parish priests were sent for to administer the sacraments. I returned to Madame de Beaumont. When she saw me, she asked, Well, are you pleased with me? She spoke feelingly of what she deigned to call my kindness to her. Ah, if I had at that moment been able to buy back a single one of her days, by the sacrifice of all my own, how gladly would I have done so! Madame de Beaumont's other friends, who were not present at this sight, had at all events but once to weep for her. Whereas I stood at the head of the bed of pain, in which man hears his last hour strike, and each smile of the patient restored me to life, and made me lose it again, as it died away. One lamentable thought distracted me. I noticed that Madame de Beaumont had not until her last breath suspected the real attachment which I bore for her. She did not cease to show her surprise, and she seemed to die disconsolate and charmed. She had believed herself a burden to me, and had wished to go to set me free. The priest arrived at eleven o'clock, the room filled with that indifferent crowd of idlers which cannot be prevented from running after the priest in Rome. Madame de Beaumont faced the formidable solemnity without the least sign of fear, 
we fell upon our knees and the patient received communion and extreme unction at once when all had retired she made me sit on the edge of her bed and spoke to me for half an hour of my affairs and of my plans with the greatest elevation of mind and the most touching friendship she urged me above all to live with madame de chateaubriand and m joubert but was m joubert himself to live she asked me to open the window as she felt oppressed a sun-ray came and lit up her bed this seemed to cheer her she then reminded me of plans for retiring to the country which we had sometimes discussed and she began to cry between two and three in the afternoon madame de beaumont asked to be changed to another bed by madame saint-germain an old spanish lady's maid who waited on her with the affection worthy of so kind a mistress the doctor forbade this fearing lest madame de beaumont might die during the moving she then told me that she felt the agony approach suddenly she flung back her blanket held out her hand to me pressed mine convulsively her eyes wandered with her one free hand she made signs to some one whom she saw standing at the foot of her bed then bringing the hand back to her breast she said it is there dismayed i asked her if she knew me a faint smile broke through her delirium she gave me a little nod of the head her speech already was no longer of this world the convulsions lasted only a few minutes we supported her in our arms the doctor the nurse and myself one of my hands lay upon her heart which could be felt against her wasted frame it beat swiftly like a clock winding off its broken chain oh moment of fear and horror i felt it stop we let down upon her pillow the woman who had found rest her head drooped some locks of her uncurled hair fell over her forehead her eyes were closed night had set in for ever the doctor held a mirror and a light to the stranger's mouth the mirror was not dimmed with the breath of life and the light remained unmoved all was ended generally those who weep are able to indulge their tears in peace there are others to take upon themselves to attend to the last cares of religion as representing for france a cardinal minister then absent and as a sole friend of m de montmorin's daughter and responsible to her family i was obliged to superintend everything i had to fix the place of burial to look after the depth and width of the grave to order the winding-sheet and to give the carpenter the dimensions of the coffin two monks watched by the coffin which was to be carried to san luigi dei francesi one of these fathers was from auvergne and a native of montmorin itself madame de beaumont had expressed the wish to be buried in a piece of cloth which her brother auguste the only one to escape the scaffold had sent her from the mauritius this cloth was not in rome only a piece of it was found which she always carried with her madame saint-germain fastened this strip around the body with a cornelian containing some of m de montmorin's hair the french ecclesiastics were invited the princesse borghese lent the funeral car of her family cardinal fesch had left orders in case of an accident but too clearly foreseen to send his livery and his carriages on saturday the fifth of november at seven o'clock in the evening by the gleam of torchlight and amidst a large crowd madame de beaumont passed along the road where we have all to pass on sunday the sixth of november the burial mass was celebrated the funeral would have been less french in paris than it was in rome that religious architecture which displays in its ornaments the arms and inscriptions of our ancient country those tombs on which are inscribed the names of some of the most historic families of our annals that church under the protection of a great saint a great king and a great man all this did not console misfortune but honoured it i had wished that the last scion of a once exalted race should at least find some support in my humble attachment and that friendship should not fail it as fortune had done the people of rome accustomed to strangers accept them as brothers and sisters madame de beaumont left a pious memory behind her on that soil so hospitable to the dead she is still remembered i have seen leo the twelfth pray at her tomb 
In 1828 I visited the monument of her who was the soul of a vanishing society. The sound of my footsteps around this silent monument, in a lonely church, was a warning to me. I shall always love thee, says the Greek epitaph, but thou among the dead drink not, I pray thee, of the cup which would cause thee to forget thy former friends. If the calamities of a private life were to be measured by the scale of public events, those calamities would hardly deserve a word in a writer's memoirs. Who has not lost a friend? Who has not seen him die? Who could not recall a similar scene of mourning? The comment is just, yet no one has ever corrected himself for telling his own adventures. Sailors on board the ship that carries them have a family on shore of whom they think and of whom they talk with one another. Every man has within himself a world apart, foreign to the laws and to the general destinies of the ages. It is, moreover, a mistake to believe that revolutions, famous accidents, resounding catastrophes are the only records of our nature. We all labour singly at the chain of our common history, and all these separate existences together compose man's universe in the eyes of God. To collect regrets around the ashes of Madame de Beaumont is but to lay upon her tomb the wreaths intended for her. Monsieur de Chandolle to Chateaubriand. You can have no doubt, my dear unhappy friend, of the great part which I take in your affliction. My grief is not so great as yours, because that is impossible, but I am very deeply afflicted by this loss, which darkens yet further this existence, which for so long has been nothing but suffering to me. It is thus that all that is good, lovable, and sensitive vanishes from the face of the earth. My poor friend, hasten back to France. Come and seek consolation with your old friend. You know how well I love you. Come. I was excessively anxious about you. It was more than three months since I had heard from you, and three of my letters have remained unanswered. Have you received them? Madame de Caux suddenly ceased writing to me two months ago. This hurt me mortally, and yet I cannot think that I have done anything to offend her. But whatever she may do, she can never take from me the fond and respectful friendship which I have vowed to her for life. Fontaine and Joubert also no longer write to me, so that all whom I loved seem to have combined to forget me at once. Do not you forget me, O oh my good friend. Leave me one heart upon which I can rely in this veil of tears. Farewell. I embrace you, weeping. Be sure, my good friend, that I feel your loss as it should be felt. 23rd November, 1803. Monsieur de Fontaine to Chateaubriand. I share all your regrets, my dear friend. I feel the painfulness of your position. To die so young, and after outliving all her family. But at any rate, that interesting and unhappy woman did not lack the help and the remembrance of friendship. Her memory will live in hearts worthy of her. I have forwarded to Monsieur de la Luzerne the touching account intended for him. Old Saint-Germain, your friend's servant, has taken it with him. That faithful attendant made me shed tears when talking of his mistress. I told him that he had a legacy of ten thousand francs, but he did not give it a single thought. If it were possible to talk of money matters under such mournful circumstances, I would say that it would have been very natural to have given you at least the use of a fortune, which will have to pass to distant and almost unknown collaterals. I approve of your conduct, I know your delicacy, but I cannot be as disinterested for my friend as he is for himself. I confess that this omission surprises and pains me. Madame de Beaumont spoke to you on her deathbed with the eloquence of a last farewell, of the future, and of your destinies. Her voice must needs have greater strength than mine. But did she advise you to throw up a salary of eight or ten thousand francs just when your path was cleared of its first thorns? Could you rashly, my dear friend, take so momentous a step? You know what a pleasure it would be to me to see you again. Were I only to consult my own happiness, I would say, come at once. But your interests are as dear to me as my own, and I see no immediate prospects for you which could make good the advantages which you are voluntarily surrendering. I know that your talents, your name, and your industry will never leave you in want of the first necessities, 
but in all that i see more fame than fortune your education your habits demand some little expenditure reputation alone will not provide the wants of life and the wretched science of bread and cheese takes precedence of all others if you want to be independent and at ease i trust that nothing will persuade you to seek your fortune among foreigners believe me my friend after the first blandishments they are worth even less than one's fellow-countrymen if your loving friend made all these reflections her last moments must have been somewhat disturbed but i hope that at the foot of her grave you will find lessons and lights superior to any which your remaining friends could give you that amiable woman loved you she will advise you well her memory and your heart will be a safe guide to you i have no more concern if you listen to them both ah dear my dear friend i embrace you tenderly Monsieur necker wrote me the only letter which i ever received from him i had witnessed the delight of the court at the dismissal of this minister the disregard of whose honest warnings contributed to the overthrow of the monarchy he had been Monsieur de montmorin's colleague Monsieur necker was shortly to die in the place whence his letter was dated not at that time having madame de steel by his side he found some tears for his daughter's friend Monsieur necker to chateaubriand sir my daughter when setting out for germany asked me to open any packets of large size that might be addressed to her so as to decide whether they were worth the trouble of forwarding by post this is the reason of my learning the news of madame de beaumont's death before she does i forwarded your letter to her sir at frankfurt whence it will probably be sent on further to her perhaps to weimar or berlin do not therefore be surprised sir if you do not receive a reply from madame de steel as early as you have the right to expect you must be assured sir of the grief which madame de steel will feel on hearing of the loss of a friend of whom i have always heard her speak with profound feeling i join in her sorrow i join sir in yours and i have my own particular share when i think of the unhappy fate of the whole family of my friend Monsieur de montmorin i see sir that you are on the point of leaving rome to return to france i hope you will choose your road through geneva where i shall spend the winter i should be very eager to do you the honours of a town where you already known by reputation but where sir are you not so known your last work sparkling with incomparable beauties is in the hands of all who love to read i have the honour sir to offer you the assurance and the homage of my most distinguished sentiments necker copay twenty seventh november eighteen o three madame de steel to chateaubriand frankfort third december eighteen o three ah heavens my dear francis with what sorrow was i smitten on receiving your letter already yesterday this frightful news was burst upon me through the papers and now comes your heart-rending narrative to engrave it for ever in letters of blood on my heart can you can you speak to me of different opinions on religion on the priests are there two opinions where there is but one sentiment i have read your account through the most sorrowful tears my dear francis think of the time at which you felt the greatest friendship for me above all do not forget that at which my whole heart was drawn towards you and tell yourself that those feelings more tender more profound than ever remain for you at the bottom of my soul i loved i admired the character of madame de beaumont i knew not one more generous more grateful more passionately sensitive since i first entered into the world i never ceased to have relations with her and i always felt even in the midst of some differences that we held together by the same roots my dear francis give me a place in your heart i admire you i love you i loved her whom you regret i am a devoted friend i will be a sister to you i must respect your opinions more than ever Mathieu, who holds them has been an angel to me in this last sorrow which i have felt give me a new reason for showing them my consideration let me be useful or agreeable to you in some way did you hear that i had been banished to a distance of forty leagues from paris i have taken the occasion to go round germany 
but in the spring i shall have returned to paris itself if my exile be ended or near paris or to geneva arrange that in some manner we may meet do you not feel that my mind and my soul understand yours and do you not feel wherein we resemble each other notwithstanding the differences Monsieur de humboldt wrote me a letter a few days ago in which he spoke to me of your work with an admiration which must flatter you in a man of his merit and opinions but why speak to you of your successes at such a moment yet she loved those successes of yours and attached her own fame to them farewell my dear francois i will write to you from weimar in saxony write to me there to the care of messrs desport bankers what harrowing phrases your story contains and then your resolve to keep poor saint-germain you must bring her to my house one day farewell affectionately and sorrowfully farewell madame de steel this eager and affectionately informal letter written by an illustrious woman redoubled my emotion madame de beaumont would have been very happy at that moment had heaven permitted her to return to life but our attachments which are perceived by the dead cannot free them from their bonds when lazarus rose from the tomb he was bound feet and hands with winding bands and his face was bound about with a napkin but friendship cannot say as christ said to martha and mary loose him and let him go my consolers have also passed away and they claim for themselves the regrets which they gave to another i determined to leave this official career in which personal misfortunes had come in addition to the triviality of the work and to paltry political annoyances one does not know what desolation of the heart means until one has remained alone wandering through spots once inhabited by a person who accepted your life you seek her and do not find her she speaks to you smiles to you accompanies you all that she has worn or touched presents her image between her and you there is only a transparent curtain but so heavy that you cannot raise it the remembrance of the first friend who has left you on the road is a cruel one for if your days have been prolonged you have necessarily suffered other losses the dead who have followed each other become linked to the first and you mourn at one time and in one person all those whom you have successively lost at this distance from france the arrangements which i was making progress slowly meanwhile i remained forlorn among the ruins of rome when i first walked out the aspect of things seemed changed to me i did not recognize the trees nor the monuments nor the sky i wandered through the fields along the cascades and aqueducts as i had done before beneath the overhanging forests of the new world then i re-entered the eternal city which now added one more extinguished life to so many spent existences by dint of my many rambles in the solitudes of the tiber they became so clearly engraved upon my memory that i was able to describe them fairly accurately in my letter to m de fontaine if the traveller be unhappy i said if he have mingled the ashes that he loved with so many ashes of the illustrious what a charm will he not find in passing from the tomb of cecilia metella to the grave of an ill-fortuned woman it was also in rome that i first formed the idea of writing the memoirs of my life i find a few lines jotted down at random from which i decipher these few words after wandering over the world spending the best years of my youth far from my native land and suffering nearly all that man can suffer not excluding hunger i returned to paris in eighteen hundred in a letter to m Joubert, i thus sketch my plan my only pleasure is to snatch a few hours wherein to busy myself with a work which alone can bring some assuagement to my grief it is the memoirs of my life rome will have a place in it it is in this way only that i can henceforth speak of rome have no fear there will be no confessions likely to give pain to my friends if i am to count for anything in the future my friends names will therein appear glorified and respected nor shall i entertain posterity with the details of my frailties i shall say of myself only what becomes my dignity as a man and i dare say it the elevation of my heart one should show to the world only what is beautiful 
it is no lie against god to unveil of one's life no more than may lead our fellows towards noble and generous feelings not that in truth i have anything to conceal i have not caused the dismissal of a servant-girl for a stolen ribbon nor left my friend to die in the street nor dishonoured the woman who sheltered me nor taken my bastards to the foundling hospital but i have had my moments of weakness of faint-heartedness one sigh over myself will be sufficient to make others understand those common miseries meant to be left behind the veil what would society gain by the reproduction of sores that occur on every side there is no lack of examples where it is a question of triumphing over our poor human nature in this plan which i made for myself i omitted my family my childhood my youth my travels and my exile yet these are the recitals in which i took most pleasure i had been like a happy slave accustomed to apply his liberty to the vine-stocks he no longer knows what to do with his leisure when his chains are broken whenever i decided to set to work a figure came and placed itself before me and i could not take my eyes from it religion alone held me by its gravity and by the reflections of a higher order which it suggested to me and yet while occupied with the thought of writing my memoirs i felt the price which the ancients attached to the value of their name there is perhaps a touching reality in this perpetuity of the memories which one may leave on the way perhaps among the great men of antiquity this idea of an immortal life among the human race supplied the place of the immortality of the soul which for them remained a problem if fame is but a small thing when it relates to ourselves it must nevertheless be agreed that to give an imperishable existence to all that it has loved is one of the finest privileges attached to the friendship of genius i undertook a commentary upon certain books of the bible beginning with genesis upon the verse behold adam is become as one of us knowing good and evil now therefore lest perhaps he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live for ever i remarked the tremendous irony of the creator behold adam is become as one of us etc lest perhaps the man put forth his hand and take of the tree of life why because he has tasted of the fruit of knowledge and knows good and evil he is now loaded with ills therefore lest perhaps he live for ever what a blessing from god is death there are prayers begun some for disquietude of soul others to strengthen oneself against the prosperity of the wicked i sought to bring back to a centre of repose the thoughts which strayed beyond me as god was not pleased to let my life end there reserving it for prolonged trials the storms which had arisen abated suddenly the cardinal ambassador changed his manner towards me i had an explanation with him and declared my resolve to resign he opposed this he maintained that my resignation at that moment would have the appearance of a disgrace that i should be delighting my enemies that the first consul would take offence which would prevent me from remaining undisturbed in the places to which i proposed to retire he suggested that i should go to spend a fortnight or a month at naples just at this moment i was being sounded on behalf of russia with a view to my accepting the place of governor to a grand duke it was as much as i would have done had i proposed to sacrifice to henry v the last years of my life while wavering between a thousand resolutions i received the news that the first consul had appointed me minister to the valet he had at first flown into a passion on the faith of some denunciations but returning to his senses he understood that i was of the race which is of value only in the front rank that i should not be mixed with others as otherwise i could never be used to advantage there was no place vacant he created one and choosing it in conformity with my instinct for solitude and independence he placed me in the alps he gave me a catholic republic in a world of torrents the rhone and our soldiers would cross at my feet the one descending towards france the others climbing towards italy while the simplon opened its daring road before me a consul was to allow me as frequent leave as i might wish to travel in italy and madame bacciocchi sent me a message through fontaine that the first important embassy available was reserved for me 
I thus won this first diplomatic victory without either expecting or intending it. True that, at the head of the state, was a lofty intelligence, which was not willing to sacrifice to official intrigues another intelligence which it knew to be but too well disposed to secede from the government. This remark is all the more true in that Cardinal Fesch, to whom I do justice in these memoirs, in a manner upon which perhaps he did not reckon, had sent two malicious dispatches to Paris, almost at the very moment at which his manners had become more obliging after the death of Madame de Beaumont. Did his true thought lie in his conversations, when he gave me leave to go to Naples, or in his diplomatic missives? The conversations and the missives bear the same date and are contradictory. It would have been easy for me to set Monsieur le Cardinal right with himself by destroying all traces of the reports that concern me. I had but to remove the ambassador's lucubrations from the carton at the time when I was Minister of Foreign Affairs. I should have done only what Monsieur de Talleyrand did in the matter of his correspondence with the Emperor. I did not consider that I had the right to turn my power to my own advantage. If by chance any one should look up these documents, he would find them in their place. That this conduct is self-deceiving I readily admit. But in order not to make a merit of a virtue which I do not possess, I must say that this respect for the correspondence of my detractors arises more from my contempt than from my generosity. I have also seen in the archives of the Berlin Embassy offensive letters from Monsieur le Marquis de Bonnet concerning myself. Far from considering my own feelings, I shall make them public. Monsieur le Cardinal Fesch was no more reticent as to the poor Abbé Guillon, the Bishop of Morocco. The latter was marked out as a Russian agent. Bonaparte called Monsieur Lernay an English agent. These are instances of the gossip of which that great man had taken the bad habit from the police reports. But was there nothing to be said against Monsieur Fesch himself? The Cardinal de Clermont-Tonnerre was at Rome like myself in 1803. What did he not write of Napoleon's uncle? I have the letters. For the rest, to whom do these contentions, buried since forty years in worm-eaten files, matter? Of the several actors of that period, one alone will remain, Bonaparte. All of us who make pretensions to live are dead already. Can the insect's name be read by the feeble light which it sometimes drags with it as it crawls? When Monsieur le Cardinal Fesch met me again, I was ambassador to Leo XII. He gave me marks of his esteem. I, on my side, made a point of outdoing him in deference. It is natural, moreover, that I should have been judged with a severity which I have never spared myself. All this is past and done with. I do not wish even to recognise the handwriting of those who, in 1803, served as official or semi-official secretaries to Monsieur le Cardinal Fesch. I set out for Naples. There began a year without Madame de Beaumont, a year of absence to be followed by so many others. I have never seen Naples again since that time, although I was on the threshold of that same town in 1828, having promised myself to go there with Madame de Chateaubriand. The orange trees were covered with their fruits, the myrtles with their flowers. Baie, the Campi Elysiae, and the sea were delights of which I no longer had any one to whom to speak. I have described the Bay of Naples in the Martyrs. I climbed Vesuvius and descended into its crater. I pilfered from myself. I was enacting a scene in René. At Pompeii I have shown a skeleton in irons and mutilated Latin words scribbled by soldiers on the walls. I returned to Rome. Canova permitted me to visit his studio while he was working at the statue of a nymph. Elsewhere the models for the marbles of the tomb which I had ordered had already attained much expression. I went to pray over ashes at San Luigi, and I left for Paris on the 21st of January 1804, another day of misfortune. Behold a prodigious misery! Five and thirty years have sped since the date of those events. Did not I flatter myself in those distant days of grief that the bond just broken would be my last? And yet how soon have I not forgotten but replaced what was dear to me? Thus man goes from weakness to weakness. When he is young and drives his life before him, a shadow of an excuse remains to him, but when he gets between the shafts and laboriously drags it behind him, how is he to be excused? 
the poverty of our nature is so intense that in our volatile infirmities in order to express our new affections we can employ only words which we have already worn threadbare in our former attachments there are words nevertheless which ought to be used but once they become profane by repetition our betrayed and neglected friendships reproach us with the new companionships that we have formed our hours arraign one another our life is one perpetual blush because it is one continued fault as my intention was not to remain in paris i alighted at the hotel de france in the rue de beaune where madame de chateaubriand came to join me to accompany me to the valet my former society already half dispersed had lost the link which held it together bonaparte was marching towards the empire his genius rose in the measure that events increased in importance he was able like gunpowder when it expands to carry away the world already immense and yet not feeling himself at his zenith he was tormented by his strength he groped he seemed to be feeling his way when i arrived in paris he was dealing with pichegru and moreau through petty envy he had consented to admit them as rivals moreau pichegru and georges cadoudal who was greatly their superior were arrested this vulgar train of conspiracies which we encounter in all the affairs of life was very distasteful to me and i was glad to seek flight in the mountains the council of the town of sion wrote to me the simplicity of this dispatch has made a document of it to me i was entering politics through religion the genie du christianisme had opened the doors for me republic of the valley sion twentieth february eighteen o four council of the town of sion to m chateaubriand secretary of legation of the french republic in rome sir an official letter from our high bailiff apprises us of your nomination to the post of french minister to our republic we hasten to express to you the very complete satisfaction which this choice gives us we see in this nomination a precious token of the goodwill of the first consul towards our republic and we congratulate ourselves on the honour of having you within our walls we draw from it the happiest auguries for the welfare of our country and of our town in order to give you a proof of these sentiments we have resolved to have a provisional lodging prepared for you worthy to receive you fitted with furniture and effects suited for your use in so far as the locality and our circumstances permit pending the time when you will yourself have been able to make arrangements to your own convenience pray sir accept this offer as a proof of our sincere inclination to honour the french government in the person of its envoy the choice of whom must needs be peculiarly pleasing to a religious people we beg you to be so good as to acquaint us with the date of your arrival in this town accept sir the assurances of our respectful consideration de reed martin president of the town council of sion by order of the town council de torrente secretary to the council two days before the twenty first of march i dressed to go to take leave of bonaparte at the tuileries i had not seen him again since the moment during which he had spoken to me at lucien's the gallery in which he was receiving was full he was accompanied by murat and a principal aide-de-camp he passed through almost without stopping as he approached me i was struck by the alteration in his face his cheeks were sunk and livid his eyes hard his complexion pale and muddy his aspect gloomy and terrible the attraction which had previously urged me towards him ceased instead of remaining on his passage i made a movement to avoid him he threw a glance at me as though to seek to recognise me took a few steps towards me then turned and walked away had i appeared to him as a warning his aide-de-camp noticed me when the crowd covered me the aide-de-camp tried to catch sight of me between the persons standing before me and again drew the consul in my direction this sport continued for nearly a quarter of an hour i always drawing back napoleon always following me without knowing it i had never been able to explain to myself what idea had struck the aide-de-camp did he take me for a suspicious man whom he had never seen did he if he knew who i was wish to force bonaparte to speak to me however this may be napoleon passed on to another apartment content to have done my duty in presenting myself at the tuileries i withdrew from the joy which i have always felt at leaving palaces 
it is evident that I was not made to enter them. On returning to the Hôtel de France, I said to several of my friends, something strange must be happening of which we do not know, for Bonaparte cannot have changed to that extent unless he be ill. Monsieur de Bourrien knew of my singular foresight. He has only confused the dates. Here is his sentence. On returning from the First Consuls, Monsieur de Chateaubriand declared to his friends that he had remarked a great alteration in the First Consul, and something very sinister in his look. Yes, I remarked it. The superior intelligence does not bring forth evil without pain, because that is not its natural fruit, and it ought not to bear it. Two days later, on the 21st of March, I rose early for the sake of a memory that was sad and dear to me. Monsieur de Montmorin had built himself a house at the corner of the Rue Plumet, on the new boulevard des Invalides. In the garden of that house, which was sold during the Revolution, Madame de Beaumont, then almost a child, had planted a cypress tree, and she had sometimes taken pleasure in showing it to me as we passed. It was to this cypress tree, of which I alone knew the origin and the history, that I went to bid adieu. It still exists, but it is pining away, and scarce rises to the level of the casement beneath which a hand which has vanished loved to tend it. I distinguish that poor tree from among three or four others of its species. It seems to know me, and to rejoice when I approach. Mournful breezes bend its yellowed head a little towards me, and it murmurs at the window of the deserted room. A mysterious intelligence reigns between us, which will cease when one or the other shall have fallen. Having paid my pious tribute, I went down the boulevard and Esplanade des Invalides, crossed the Pont Louis XV and the Tuileries Gardens, which I left near the Pavilion Masson, by the gate which now opens into the Rue de Rivoli. There, between eleven and twelve o'clock in the morning, I heard a man and a woman crying official news. Passers-by were stopping, suddenly petrified by these words. Verdict of the Special Military Commission summoned at Vincent, condemning to pain of death the man known as Louis-Antoine-Henri de Bourbon, born on the 2nd of August, 1772, at Chantilly. This cry fell upon me like a thunderbolt. It changed my life, as it changed Napoleon's. I returned home. I said to Madame Chateaubriand, The Duc d'Enghien has been shot. I sat down to a table and began to write my resignation. Madame de Chateaubriand raised no objection, and with great courage watched me writing. She did not blind herself to my danger. General Moreau and Georges Cadoudal were being prosecuted. The lion had tasted blood. This was not the moment to irritate him. Monsieur Clausel de Cossergues arrived in the interval. He also had heard the sentence cried. He found me pen in hand, my letter from which, out of compassion for Madame de Chateaubriand, he made me suppress certain angry phrases, was dispatched. It was addressed to the Minister of Foreign Relations. The wording mattered little. My opinion and my crime lay in the fact of my resignation. Bonaparte made no mistake as to that. Madame Bacciocchi exclaimed loudly on hearing of what she called my disloyalty. She sent for me and made me the liveliest reproaches. Monsieur de Fontaine at first went almost mad with fear. He already saw me shot with all the persons who were attached to me. During several days my friends went in dread of seeing me carried off by the police. They called on me from one minute to the other, always trembling as they approached the porter's lodge. Monsieur Pasquier came and embraced me on the day after my resignation, saying he was happy to have such a friend as I. He remained for a fairly considerable time in an honourably moderate opposition, removed from place and power. Nevertheless, the movement of sympathy which impels us to praise a generous action came to an end. I had, in consideration of religion, accepted a place outside France, a place conferred upon me by a mighty genius, the conqueror of anarchy, a leader sprung from the popular principle, the consul of a republic, and not a king continuing an usurped monarchy. At that time I stood alone in my feeling, because I was consistent in my conduct. I retired when the conditions to which I was able to subscribe altered, but so soon as the hero had changed himself into a murderer, there came a rush for his antechamber. Six months after the 21st of March, one might have thought that there was only one opinion in society. 
but for a few malicious jests in which people indulged in private fallen persons pretended to have been violated and only they it said were violated who possessed a great name or great importance and each one to prove his importance or his quarterings contrived to be violated by dint of solicitation those who had most loudly applauded me fell away my presence was a reproach to them prudent people find imprudence in those who yield to honour there are times in which loftiness of soul is a real infirmity no one understands it it passes for a sort of narrowness of mind for a prejudice an unintelligent trick of education a crotchet a whim which interferes with the judgment an honourable imbecility perhaps but a stupid helotism what capacity can any one find in shutting your eyes in remaining indifferent to the march of the century to the movement of ideas to the change of manners to the progress of society is it not a deplorable mistake to attach to events an importance which they do not possess barricaded behind your narrow principles your mind as limited as your judgment you are like a man living at the back of a house looking out only on a little yard unaware of what happens in the street or of the noise to be heard outside that is what a little independence reduces you to an object of pity to the average man as to the great minds with their affectionate pride and their haughty eyes oculos sublimes their compassionate disdain forgives you because they know that you cannot hear i therefore shrank back humbly into my literary career a poor pindar destined in my first olympic to praise the excellence of water leaving wine to the happy friendship put fresh heart into m de fontaine madame bacciocchi placed her kindness between her brother's anger and my resolution m de talleyrand through indifference or calculation kept my resignation for several days before speaking of it when he announced it to bonaparte the latter had her time to reflect on receiving from me the only direct sign of blame from an honest man who was not afraid to defy him he uttered merely these two words very well later he said to his sister were you very much alarmed for your friend long after in conversation with m de fontaine he confessed that my resignation was one of the things that had impressed him most m de talleyrand had an official letter sent to me in which he gracefully reproached me for depriving his department of my talents and services i returned the expenses of installation and all was apparently finished but in daring to leave bonaparte i had placed myself upon his level and he was incensed against me with all the strength of his perfidy as i against him with all that of my loyalty till the day of his fall he held the sword suspended over my head sometimes he returned to me by a natural leaning and tried to drown me in his fatal prosperity sometimes i was drawn to him by the admiration with which he inspired me by the idea that i was assisting at a transformation of society not at a mere change of dynasty but antipathetic in so many respects our respective natures gained the upper hand and if he would gladly have had me shot i should have felt no great compunction in killing him death makes a great man or unmakes him it stops him on the stair which he was about to descend or on the step which he was about to climb his is a destiny that has succeeded or failed in the first case one is reduced to examine what it has been in the second to conjecture what it might have become if in doing my duty i had been prompted by far-seeing views of ambition i should have deceived myself charles x learned only at prague what i had done in eighteen o four he had but lately been king chateaubriand he said to me at the castle of radchen had you served bonaparte yes sire did you resign on the death of monsieur le duc d'enghien yes sire misfortune instructs or restores the memory i have told you how one day in london when i had taken shelter with monsieur de fontaine in a passage during a storm monsieur le duc de bourbon came and sought cover under the same refuge in france his gallant father and he who so politely thanked whoever wrote a funeral oration on monsieur le duc d'enghien did not send me one word of remembrance they were doubtless unaware of my conduct true i never told them of it End of Book 2, Part 2